when the world is crap and you've got the blues just take a break from all that horrible news for something crazy amazingly clever and never half-assed when it is yes it's the randy rainbow podcast this song is almost over girl so wipe your tears you're in for a treat and feast your ears on this remarkable feat yes it's a famous celebrity finally Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode two of the Randy Rainbow Podcast. Can you believe episode two? I am already a seasoned veteran of the podcasting profession. Today is a very, very special episode. Why? Because I'm not wearing any pants. But that's not all. The real reason that this is perhaps the most special episode, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to venture to say this is the most special uh, Randy Rainbow podcast so far. It's episode two. But um, I think it's safe to say that this is uh, an event because today's very special guest is none other than the one and only Carol Burnett. Editor, please add a fanfare after I said Carol Burnett and then delete this part where I tell you to add a fanfare. Um, Yes, Carol Burnett, can you believe, is uh, actually now a personal friend of mine. What is life? And she's agreed to call into the podcast and so she'll be on a little bit later. I can't wait to talk to her. I'm also very excited because it's finally September. Oh, September. We're in the burrs. Thank you, Lord. Let me tell you a little something about me. I hate the summer. I have what I think is known as reverse seasonal affective disorder in that um, whereas a lot of people experience this in the the, uh, colder winter months, I get very depressed during the summer. I like summer for about nine minutes, and then by the end of summer, I am so just I, I just don't feel like I'm in my body. Like I, th- I find the heat so oppressive. I was born in New York, but raised in South Florida. Maybe that has something to do with it. So, you know, I, I just I always longed for uh, seasons and to be able to to dress like a person. You know, like with layers and stuff. And I find the summer. I take it very personally. I, f- I feel like the summer is is happening only to me. You know, and I and I I find that I resent it. This is not a popular opinion uh, uh, in many circles. I know lots of people love the summer, but too bad. This is a controversial podcast, and I said what I said. So I'm very excited that we're into the burrs. It's September, and of course it's still in the 80s here in New York. But whatever, it's we're getting there. And I am a real basic Bath and Body Works bitch when it comes to the fall. And Bath and Body Works is not a sponsor of this podcast yet, but if they're smart, they will become a sponsor because I am a walking endorsement for their product. I travel around the country. I'm always with their little hand sanitizers and I have the soaps and the little body washes. They're all over my apartment. Uh, All the, you know, cinnamon spice pumpkin and apple picker fucker, whatever they're called. And I just love them. Anyway, I find one of the truly... Crucial ingredients um, to making a home nice and cozy this time of year is music. And I'm all set up with my Sonos system, also not a sponsor. Perhaps they will be. And I have speakers in every room of my apartment. It's just heavenly. 
over the pandemic, I got very into uh, vinyl. I collect vinyl now. I'm one of those assholes, but I love it. And it actually doesn't have all to do with sound. I know a lot of people who collect vinyl um, are sound aficionados. And don't get me wrong, I do appreciate some of the richer sound of many of my uh, vinyl records, especially the Broadway cast albums. What I find I really love, however, about the whole thing, nowadays, in a time when everything is so connected to a network, Spotify, Apple Music, all those streaming services are fabulous, and we can listen to anything we want whenever we want. But I do find that to hold a record you know, and pull it out of the sleeve and feel the weight of it in your hands and look at the artwork on the cover. I know I sound like your grandmother right now, but I am your grandmother. And to place the record onto the turntable and know that the grooves on that record are your grooves and yours alone, and they're producing a sound in that moment that exclusively belongs to you and is not connected to a whole network of people. There's something that I just find very personal and even meditative about that, again, when we're all just too connected. So I'm obsessed with vinyl. In fact, I'm recording this now in my studio, which is the studio where I make all my videos. And I I have a vinyl, um, well, the walls are adorned with many things that I love that inspire me. Lots of Broadway posters and paraphernalia, memorabilia, I guess you'd call it. That's from Grey Gardens. And lots of framed vinyl record covers. Right now I'm looking at uh, covers of the original Broadway cast of The Wiz and Funny Girl and Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall. I'm gay, by the way. Did I mention that? Uh, Dream Girls, the original Broadway cast album, and Grease. Grease is uh, the, the movie soundtrack. I've got that one up. And, of course, we just lost the great Olivia Newton-John, which makes me so very sad. I loved her so much as we all did. Um, When I was a kid, I write about this in my book. There's a chapter called Pajama Bottoms. And when I was a little kid, I used to uh, stand in front of the TV and reenact movie musicals um, and, and, you know, dress up as the characters. And my avatar of choice was usually the girl part. Is that a surprise to anybody? So, of course, when I put on grease, I would wear um, these yellow pajama pants on my head and pretend to be Sandy. This was before I had a wig budget. I just wanted to be Olivia Newton-John or Judy Garland in The Wizard of Oz, obviously. You know who else I was obsessed with? I went through a very serious Annette Funicello phase. I think it was Babes in Toyland that did it for me. I just wanted to be Annette for like two years. I also loved Frankie Avalon around that time, but for different reasons. We would later find out. Another blonde bombshell who I was always obsessed with and always pretending to be with those pajama pants on my head was the great Shirley Jones, who starred, of course, in the movie versions of Oklahoma and The Music Man. I really wanted to be her so badly. And I didn't. she didn't get a mention in my book, so I feel bad about that. Cheryl, if you're listening, love you, wanted to be you, still do. Come be a guest on my podcast. We'll talk about it. Anyway, I've been talking long enough. What time is it? Oh, my God. We are just minutes away from my interview with the one and only Carol Burnett. So enough of the vinyl records and the Bath and Body Works pumpkin spice candle. I love the candles, too. Did I mention I have uh, the pumpkin snickerdoodle going right now? I'm so basic. Anyway, while we wait for our special guest, why not let's do a little homage to Carol Burnett by bumping up the lights and taking some questions from you, the audience. Hit it. 
pick up. I would like to know, how did your cat enter your life? Ah, yes, the beloved icon, Tippy Rainbow, who's actually sitting right here in her little purse. She has a little pink purse that, uh, it's not little, you know, it's a carrier. It's a cat carrier. Usually cats run when they see the carrier come out. They know it's not a good sign. But Tippy loves her pink purse. She's always been fashion forward, as we know. Anyway, that's where she's sleeping right now. So how did Tippy come into my life? Well, if you read my book, Playing With Myself, and I'm sorry to keep referring to my book. I swear I'm not a plug whore. It's just that that book, which came out recently, is the first time that I've ever discussed my personal life in any kind of long form. So I find that when you ask me a question about something that I discuss in the book, it's a perfect opportunity to sell a few copies. So I guess I am a plug whore. Um, The chapter I hear from people the most about, without question, is chapter 18 called Comes the Time We Have to Say So Long. And it's a brutal chapter about uh, how I had to say goodbye to my last cat, my beloved Mushy, in 2020 at the start of the first COVID lockdown. He was 17. He got really sick really fast um, in the worst at the worst time possible, and uh, it just ended up being one of the most horrific experiences probably of my life. Um, And I wanted to write about it, A, because I wanted to pay tribute to Mushy, and B, because I know I have a lot of pet lovers in my audience who I knew would relate. But if you haven't read it yet, it's rough. But the happy ending is I now have my darling Tippy, um, I believe because Mushy sent her to me. Here's the thing. I am someone who is um, really abnormally attached emotionally to my pets, probably in a way that is unhealthy, whatever. So I have a pretty strict one-year rule. I, I could not even consider the notion of bringing a new pet into the house until after a year has passed, usually. But um, three months after Mushy passed, I had a dream. I had a dream. I'm sorry, I slipped into Gypsy. And in this dream, Mushy visited me, and it was one of those dreams that was so vivid I could smell him and I could feel his fur, and I, it was so emotional that I woke up sobbing hysterically with tears streaming down my face. And I remembered the very last scene of the dream, you know, before the credits rolled, was Mushy, or it was a version of Mushy, it was like his understudy, lying on his back on the welcome mat of this apartment where I lost him, this this new apartment that I had just moved into. But he was all in white. It was very Les Mis. And I just assumed it was just like his, you know, second act finale costume. But then I woke up, and without even thinking, I grabbed my laptop and Googled white Persian. This is where I'm going to get in trouble with the PETA people, I know. But I found someone basically in my neighborhood, which already was kind of odd and serendipitous feeling, that that was a a breeder of white Persians, silver chinchilla Persians. Now, I know all of the adopt-don't-shop people will come for me. 
I get it. There are elements of that movement that I totally agree with. Of course, there are certain parts of it that I don't agree with. I believe it's a very nuanced discussion that I will not have right now. You know, I don't like to get political. But long story short, you know, I think that people conflate things like puppy mills and shady breeders um, with reputable breeders. And I believe that those animals and all animals deserve to be loved, except Mitch McConnell. Anyway, that said, I have usually always adopted, um, except the last two times. So I I called this woman and she said, I have one little white kitten, a little boy, Persian, and a silver chinchilla Persian is the fancy feast breed. So they're really, really cute. And she sent me a picture of this little boy kitten, and it looked like a friggin' Pixar movie character. So I said, I'll be right over. Actually, it was a few days later. I did my research, and this woman checked out. And so then I went over, and I met this adorable little kitten. I fell in love instantly. Uh, Three weeks later, brought him home to the apartment, and I just felt like I was ready and healed enough because Mushy told me it was time. The addendum to the story is that I named the cat Sweeney after Sweeney Todd because he was a boy kitten and a vengeful murderer. Um, Okay, now I'm going to name drop because a few days before I picked him up, the kitten, I went to dinner with Patty Lupone. Mm-hmm. And we went through the list of names I was considering. She, of course, loved Sweeney, and it was settled. Then cut to Sweeney's second visit to the vet. The, the vet called me and said, are you sitting down? Sweeney is a girl. So I renamed Sweeney Tippy after the character Ozma Tipitarius from the Oz books, specifically the Marvelous Land of Oz, which introduces the character of Tipitarius, or Tip, Uh, a little orphan boy who was later revealed to be Ozma, the princess of Oz in disguise. So it's a little nod to the gender-bending situation we found ourselves in. She is not named after Tippi Hedren, for those of you who asked, who we do love and who is an animal rights activist, uh, except when it comes to birds. (laughs) Just kidding. That's a little Hitchcock humor. Calm down. Hey girl, this is Deanne. My husband and I have a flagpole in the front yard and we're allies. We'd like to fly a rainbow flag, but we're not really afraid of what the neighbors think, but what the gays think. So tell me, is it okay with the LGBTQIA folks if allies fly their flag as long as it's flown in support? Deanne, girl, you fly that flag, bitch. Excuse me, that's inappropriate. I Listen, I am, I say the more the merrier, I suppose there are people out there in my community who would be offended by your, uh, I don't know, what would you call that, homosexual appropriation? Chances are you're going to find people who are offended by almost anything you do nowadays. But I don't find this offensive. I say plant that pole. That sounds inappropriate, but you know what I mean. Wave, wave the flag and thanks for the love. Now, if you really want to cover all your bases, you will let your husband make out with me. And then no one could really have a word to say about it. Um, and if you're a true ally, you'll arrange for that to happen. Thank you. Next caller. Hi, Randy. Esty here from Towson, Maryland. Um, my daughter Jazz and I came to see you on your show last year. 
in Washington, D.C., and she even walked up to the stage and introduced herself to you, which was adorable. She still remembers it as one of her top moments in her life. So thank you for that. My question was, what was the most memorable uh, moment for you in your uh, tour last year? And what are you most looking forward to the coming tour? Thank you. We love you. Girl, I remember you. And it was one of the best moments of my life, too. Thank you so much for rushing the stage, but don't do it again because the security will tackle you and escort you out of the building. I'm just kidding. Listen, I'm really excited about touring. I actually have just started my fall tour 2022. Tickets available now at randyrainbow.com. And I used to be completely turned off to the idea of touring years ago before I started because I, by nature, am not a traveling man. I do not like traveling. As Elaine Stritch said in her uh, fabulous one-woman show, Elaine Stritch at Liberty, the opening line, and one that I know she was very proud of, uh, was, it's like the prostitute once said, it's not the work, it's the stairs. Which means, you, you know, what, you know, it's not doing it, it's getting there. That's probably not an appropriate joke for Jazz's age group. I apologize. Anyway, getting there is kind of a pain in the tush. But once I'm there and I'm on stage in front of uh, all of you wonderful people out there in the dark, Sunset Boulevard, it's quite exhilarating. This is a very, it can be a very isolating experience, what I do, in that I, I sit and or stand in a room alone most of the time to create these videos. Um, and it's all me, 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 and I get sick of myself. And then I get to hear from you over social media once I put the thing out, but it's not until I get to go on tour um, that I actually get to be in the same room with you face-to-face -face and feel your energy, and that is so gratifying and rewarding. And um, so that's what I'm most looking forward to. Thanks again for coming, Jazz. Are you coming back this year? Are you? I hope so. Love you. The one and only Randy Rainbow presents the Pink Glasses Tour. See four-time Emmy-nominated comedian, singer, producer, and show-stopping performer Randy Rainbow live on stage. Featuring his classic parodies, new hits, and some surprises in his inimitable style, Randy Rainbow. Getting worse with every stupid Live across go. North America. Like For tickets and info, go to randyrainbow.com. It's the Randy Rainbow Podcast. Variety Show. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Hello, friends. Randy Rainbow here. Everyone except me knows that getting older can have a substantial effect on a man's confidence. As you age, your body starts to change and the hair on your head begins to gray. That's why I proudly endorse Ragin' Rudy's two-minute hair dye. Developed by former New York City mayor and current goblin Rudy Giuliani, Rage and Rudy's two-minute hair dye can be applied whether you're going out for that big job interview, a hot date, or inciting an insurrection against democracy, giving you a look you'll love. 
Raging Rudy uses the time-honored practice of fracking indigenous farmlands to extract only the best natural oils. It's guaranteed to darken your hair and keep your dye from running down the side of your goddamn head for literal hours on end. Raging Rudy's takes just two minutes to apply and targets only darker color tones like an NYPD stop and frisk. Can I say that? Don't get caught about to expose yourself to what you thought was a 15-year-old on a Borat film without looking your rudiest. Let's make a man's hair great again. It's Raging Rudy's two-minute hair dye. Ugh, gross. That was really a kick, but enough of that skit. Time to drop all the shit now. So let's cut the shit. I think a fabulous kiki with someone I love would be back. It's time for a guest. Well, our guest today needs no introduction, but damn it, she deserves one. So here you go. She's an icon, a legend, and perhaps the funniest person to ever live. She's best known for her guest appearance on Glee. Just kidding. It's the incomparable Carol Burnett. Hello. Hi, Carol. It's Randy. Hi, sweetheart. How are you? Good, darling. How are you? I'm good. I am almost finished with your book. (gasps) Are you serious? I'm so honored. Oh, I, uh, Randy, it is so wonderful. The way you, you write is, uh, it, uh, I'm just, uh, I was ab- absolutely gobsmacked by it. It is, and, and to know that you had a nanny. I'm staring at her picture right now. So, oh, God, Are you? don't make me oh, cry God. at the beginning of the interview, Carol. But yes, but but she loved and adored and worshipped you. So, so yeah, the connection oh. it just means more than you'll ever really know. Although maybe you do know. I do, I do. And the, you know, and the, you're you're writing about Mushi, and I mean, it's just a, and of course, all the wonderful comedic, brilliant, you know. But uh, also getting into. Oh my God! What you went through with your father, and oh, aye, aye, aye. it's just you're—you're uh, you're just an amazing human being, oh, and I love you so much, Carol. I love you too. All right, well, that's all we have time for. <laughs> Good night, everybody. No, that, <laughs> so long. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. That means the world to me. All right, now we got to talk about you because that's what I'm here for. Okay. First of all, thank you for for doing my podcast. I appreciate it so much. This is so special for me and for everybody listening. And um. Well, just to start off, for those out there who don't know the Randy Carroll history, this is not our first time talking, obviously. Um, I consider right. you a, a personal friend. I'm honored to consider you a personal friend. And I think, uh, well, to go all the way back, I have obviously been madly in love with and obsessed with you for my whole life. But until about two years ago, I think it was pretty much a one-sided relationship. But in your defense, you didn't know about me yet. But in 2020... It was the first time we spoke, right? And you were nice enough to call me at home, and uh, your your fabulous daughter Jody Hamilton had come to see my show in L.A., which was the last show I did before the world shut down, and uh, she connected us. And um, you were gracious enough and and generous enough on that call to invite me to be your guest when you received the Sondheim Award at the Signature Theater right. Annual Gala. Yeah. So you and your mom, me and my mom. And uh, of yeah. course, and I write in the book how uh, special that was to me, and then subsequently how devastated I was that, of course, the world shut down and it, it didn't happen. Right. But here we are two years later, and now in just a matter of days, I will at last be in your presence. I know we can finally, after all this time, 
lock eyeballs. I can't wait. I really, it's been like the only thing getting me through these last few weeks is the fact that I'll be in the same room with you in just a couple days. Oh, well, we're going to be sitting next to each other at the dinner. We are. Carol, I'm sitting next to you? Of course. <gasps> I can't. It's too much. Of course. It's too much. Of course. We've got, you know, at our table, it's going to be, uh, well, you and your mom, uh, my husband, uh, Brian, and me, Bernadette and her beau, and uh, uh, Santino and his wife, and that's us. Oh, my God. All the big shots of show yeah. business, my mother especially. Yeah. Um, that's so exciting. Well, now I'm really excited. <laughs> but you're receiving the 11th annual, I think it's the 11th annual, right? Sondheim Award. Of course, also, since we spoke in 2020, we've sadly lost Stephen Sondheim. I know. I, yeah. So what does it mean to you to, to get this award now? Well, it's... Uh, even two years ago, I was absolutely stunned, you know, and... Uh, and knowing Stephen and having worked with him, I was really honored that he, you know, at the time he chose, uh, he, he he picked me to uh, receive this award, which was just, oh, so, so thrilling for me. And um, anyway, I, I first met Stephen, oh my gosh, in 1960, I was doing a special, get this, with Jose Ferrer and Rosie Clooney. They were doing a Thanksgiving special, and Dick Van Dyke and I were the guests. And at the end of the show, uh, at one point, as the charwoman, I sang Nobody, which was a, a song that uh, I had done before. And Steve was there at the rehearsal and came up and introduced himself to me. And that was the first time we ever met. Oh, my goodness. And then you, and when was the, yeah. and then you, of course, worked with him after that. What, what was the first time you worked together? Well, really, I think it was putting it together. Oh, really? Yeah, we first did it in, I did his 75th uh, birthday celebration. I was part of that at the Hollywood Bowl. But we did uh, putting it together in 2000, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yeah I think that was it. I, I wish I was Mary Lou Henner. <laughs> You'd remember what Sometimes you were wearing. I can't remember. Exactly. <laughs> but really, uh, working with him on putting it together was uh, was good. And I did Follies. I did the um, uh, the thing on Follies, That's you know, great. the televised version of Follies with, uh, with Barbara Cook and Mandy Patinkin. And I sang I'm Still Here. He, I remember he called me from New York. I was in California. And it was like a, months and months before we were going to do it. And he said, Carol, I would love, we're going to do a recording of Follies. And I said, Oh, great. And he said, and I would love you if you would do, I'm still here. And I said, sure. I would love to. He said, okay, we'll be in touch and everything. So months went by and I'm not thinking too much about it. And then finally they said, okay, we're going to do the recording in a couple of weeks or whatever in New York. So um, I flew back. About oh, a week before we were to do the recording. And I'm having lunch. I'm going to name drop here. Please. With my darling friend, Beverly Sills. And we're having lunch at this one uh, time. She said, oh, I'm coming to see you in Follies. And there was a long pause. And I said, what, is she going to sit in the booth while we're recording? What is it? She said, well, no, it's, it's going to be at the <laughs> Philharmonic. And it's a performance. Randy, I didn't know that. Oh my God, you didn't know that it was an, a performance? No, they didn't tell. They didn't. <laughs> when he had said we're going to do a recording, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to stand there, be in a recording booth. I've got the lyrics in front of me. I'll do the song. That's great. Oh my God. 
a recording was, that's what I thought it was going to be. Oh God, is that hilarious? I didn't know the song. I knew the, I knew it, but I didn't know it. You know what I mean? I knew the, the, I knew the music and I knew part of the lyrics and stuff like that, but oh my God, I thought I was going to faint. Oh my God. Now I get the lyrics and I'm listening on my little tape recorder to people singing it over and over and over again. So, because as you know, his lyrics were tricky. Yeah. They were very tricky. And if you miss one little syllable or something, you're, you're sunk, you know? And I thought, oh my God, please, please. Now, now we go into a run through and there's everybody there. Oh my wonderful Elaine Stritch and Barbara Cook, Mandy Patinkin and, and Phyllis Newman and, you know, all these wonderful people in this rehearsal hall. And I said to the director, I said, can I just hold the lyrics right now while we do the run through? Okay. So I did that. I got through it, but I was reading because there were times when I did not know, okay, what's the next word? What's the next verse coming? You know, (laughs) I'm the only one. I don't know why, but nobody told me. I really did not think it was going to be a performance. That is crazy. Embarrassed. I was so embarrassed. I said, do you think maybe I could have some cue cards? So they got this person, wrote up the cue cards and everything like that. Now we get to the venue, right? There's no place to put the cue cards. Oh, no. I have such anxiety listening to this story, Carol. Oh, my God. Yeah, the orchestra's behind me. And then in the wings, they put the cue card guy back in the wings. So if I had to look at the cue cards, I would have to turn around and my back would be to the audience. Oh, God. So, <laughs> God. So what'd you do? Yeah. So I said, so this cute, poor cute card guy was in the wings, but they were behind me. You know, well, Randy, I don't know. The lyric gods were smiling on me. I got through it. Oh, God. And without having to turn around and, and you know, and, <laughs> and not face the audience, I got through it. Oh. And if you see that, today on YouTube, you will see the most frightened human being ever on a stage. I was terrified. That's a testament to what a pro you are, because I've been watching that for years and never, never would have guessed that story. Now, they fil- they filmed the whole re- rehearsal process for that show, which is one of the most they fabulous did. things to watch. Do you see any of that behind the scenes with you, like finding out? And I, I forget if any of that's no, included. No, 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 because uh, they told me, as I said, I found out when Beverly Sills told me. And then when we were at rehearsal, so by then I knew that I was uh, in deep doo-doo. Oh, God. (laughs) It was just, oh, God, I have never been more frightened in my life on a stage than I was then. That's incredible. Well, what was Sondheim, you know, he usually is very involved in the rehearsal process. Was he for this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was. Oh, yeah. And at at one point he, I was kind of back phrasing a little bit and he said, just, just sing it straight. You know, because I, for whatever reason, you know, and I said, okay. And that was the only note he gave. And then he came back and gave me a hug after the show. Wow. So I felt redeemed, I'll you say. know, but oh my. Wow. Well, yeah, as Elaine Stritch <laughs> says, uh, Stephen Sondheim's approval will keep you on the straight and narrow for two or three years. Yeah. Oh, she was funny. She had great legs. Sure did. Great gams. Never wore pants. And, oh, no. <laughs> At one point, she was in the corner of the rehearsal hall and Phyllis Newman said, Okay, don't look, don't look, don't look. But she's changing her clothes now. And she was in front of all of us. 
taking her pants off so that she could show her legs. Oh God. <laughs> it was so adorable. You know, and we, we teased her about it. She said, well, honey, they're the last things to go. Oh God. I miss Elaine Stritch <laughs> so much. I miss her every day. Did you see her documentary? Oh yeah. Well, I saw her, her show live, you know, what to see it when, when she was doing it on Broadway. Fabulous. Oh, fantastic. Ugh. Well, you're schlepping around the country. Like I've been doing your one woman show now. Yeah. I've been doing this as Q and A's, like what I did on my show. And what I do is I show about seven or eight minutes. I open with uh, clips of some of my favorite Q and A's that we did on my show. And then I come out and I just say, bump up the lights and it's all random. You know, there's no, uh, no planted questions at all. And then during the course of the 90 minutes, I do some Q&As, and then I talk about some of the musical guests that we had, and then I show some clips of that, being Crosby and Ella Fitzgerald, Ethel Merman, Rita Hayworth, uh, on and on. And that's about uh, about six minutes, and then I do more Q&As, and then I show some of the movie takeoffs that we did, because Nanny and I used to go to the movies. We lived a block north of Hollywood Boulevard, and we'd save our pennies. And back then, there were double features. And so on the weekends, sometimes, Randy, I saw as many as six to eight movies a week. Oh my God, that's a lot. It was all my, the musicals, Mickey and Judy were my favorite, Betty Grable, and, and, and then, you know, wow. When I got my own show, I had as guests, I had Betty Grable on as a guest. Oh, God. Gloria Swanson. I mean, it was just, I felt like I died and gone to heaven because here I was a kid looking at all these people in the movies and then being able to work with them. I'm still shocked yeah. that I was able to, to do all of that. And anyway, so that's what I do with the Q&As. And then, as I say, I never know what anybody's going to ask. I've been doing this for 40 years. Before you were born. Uh, thank you. I just finished doing eight. I did these because they had been postponed. They had been scheduled two years ago, you know, because of the pandemic, they were postponed. So I made up for these last eight. And the audiences were all there. They they didn't turn in their tickets. So it was a thrill. So I came out and I would say, oh, well, it only took two years, but here we go. And uh as I say, it's random. So this one lady, uh, you know, I called on her and she said, two years ago, I bought two tickets for my mother and me and she was 101 and the audience went, oh, and I went, oh, and then she said, and we're here tonight. Don't tell me. The mother was 103 in the audience? <gasps> yep. She stood up and took a bow. I think it's because of you. She hung on because of you. <laughs> You know, when she said she was 101, everybody thought, oh, you know, she passed right. away. My and condolences. Yeah, right. She said, and we're here tonight. Wow, that's so terrific. When you do your Q&A, do you have any plants or you just do it random? No, I have no plants. I'm, I'm strictly, completely, 100% just ripping off Carol Burnett, as I usually do. <laughs> and uh, it's it's my favorite part of the show, because as you know, it generates the, the most off-the-cuff funny, you know, moments. Right. It's ele it's electric. So I love that. Yeah, well, I always say, you know, it keeps the old gray matter ticking it does. because you have to be in the present. You can't be thinking about tomorrow or what you did yesterday. You know, you've got to be in the moment. Yes. I'm thrilled too, is that because of you know, YouTube and we're on MeTV and DVDs and so forth, aside from getting a 103 year old, I get 
nine-year-olds. Yes, you have a very uh, eclectic age group in your audience. Yeah. Well, there was a little boy uh, a couple of years ago who was in the second row. He raised his hand and I said, well, first of all, what's your name? And he said, Andrew. And I said, how old are you, Andrew? And he said, nine. And I said, and you know who I am? And there was a pause. And he said, surprisingly, yes. Andrew. Surprisingly, yes. Surprisingly, yes. So what does he know you from, YouTube? Or what, what did you find out what, yeah. what his thing is? YouTube and DVDs and stuff like that. He wanted to take me out to dinner. Oh, Andrew. So Isn't that one of the best things, would you say? you? I mean, you do. You, you're just because of the nature of your, your body of work. You do. You have, you have fans of all age groups. Is that important to you to have the youngsters? Oh, absolutely. Because of this, I'm getting a lot of fan mail. And so many of them are from teenagers. And 10-year-olds and 20-year-olds, people who, uh, we come home from school and we watch you on, on YouTube or MeTV or whatever, you know. It's really nice because I think our show, it works pretty much because we never were political, right. per se. You know, we didn't go into what was happening in the news that day or whatever. It was really kind of just an old-fashioned vaudeville show. I just wanted to be a, a musical comedy review every week that you could, you know, put on Broadway. And I wanted just belly laughs. Right. And um, what was important to me was to have a rep company. I remember when I started out, Randy, with a wonderful man who was Gary Moore, and he had a, a television variety show. And he hired me, I was in my 20s, as a second banana. And uh, Derward Kirby was the other second banana. And Gary Moore was the star. But he would, like on a Monday, we would be reading the script for that week. And he might have a joke or a punchline or something. And he would say, you know what? Give this joke to Carol or give it to Derward. They can say it funnier than I can. Hmm. That's who he was. So when, even though it said at the Carol Burnett show, I wanted Harvey and Tim and Vicky and Lyle always to score, to make a touchdown, because it only made our show better. So there were many sketches where I'd be supporting Harvey, right. or Tim would be supporting Vicky, or Vicky would be supporting. We spread it around, and I think that's what made it work, too, yeah. so that everybody could score a touchdown. And I dare anybody today to watch the dentist sketch with Tim and Harvey and not lose it, and that's 45 years old. But it holds up today. I even show part of that during my Q&As, and the audience goes nuts. Yeah. Oh, and it's still, again, it's still it, belly laughs it holds up. to this day. And I think even, you know, you talk about topical humor. You did, you never touch topical humor. I kind of, I went the opposite way. But when people ask me why, you know, this, the stuff that I do is not as polarizing as some other political commentary show. No, say. yours is funny. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. Well, thank you. I think my secret is, my one of my stock answers is kind of a joke, but it's not a joke, is again, Ripping off Carol. I just, I don't want to be a pundit. I don't want to really make a political statement. I just want to be Carol Burnett. And I think that's the reason that people, you know, it doesn't polarize people because what they're seeing really is just kind of what, what you were doing in those old movie send ups. I'm just dressing up and, and playing, you know, fantasy right. and playing parts that I never would get to play. Exactly. Exactly. You're not, you're not being vicious or mean. You're being funny and adorable. Like you know, no. said. And, well, pretty much on the ne on the nose about certain things, which is absolutely hilarious. Listen, you gotta you gotta inject a little uh, opinion here and there, but uh, really, I'm just trying to be amusing. I have to ask you a couple of facts that I'm obsessed with. Number one, 
Is it true that you were well, talking about, you know, the early 60s? I heard that you were one of the original choices to play Fanny Brace in Funny Girl. Is that true? <laughs> no. Uh, what happened was I was doing, uh, I was on tour in 1962. I had a, a show that I was doing with uh, Alan and Rossi and 20 Boy Dancers, and we played six cities. And Jerome Robbins came to see me when we were in Detroit. They weren't offering me the job at all. He wanted to wanted me to just read stuff from the script for him. And I said, you know what? I remember we had breakfast in the hotel room and he had the script with him. I said, I really don't see why you, you're here. I, I'm flattered, but I'm from Texas. And I'm not Jewish. If you want me to do any, get your gun. I'm home free, right. <laughs> but not funny girl. And I literally said, I have two people I would recommend. If you want a person who's already established, even though she's not Jewish, I would uh, go with Anne Bancroft. I thought at that time she, she would be terrific. And I said, and if you want to make a big star, I think you should go with this girl, Barbara Streisand. <gasps> the story just got so much better. <laughs> well, I mean, I wasn't the only one to say that. Right, you sure. know, it's not like, oh, good. We heard that from Carol. Uh, but I, I did say that. Too. I said, if you want to make a star, it should be Barbara Streisand. Wow. You know, so we finished our breakfast. He hugged me and off he went. That's know? amazing. <laughs> well, it's diff It's hard for me to sort of reconcile this emotionally because, of course, I, I'm obsessed with Barbara Streisand as, as I am with you. And we wouldn't maybe have had Barbara Streisand had that not happened. But also... I kind of would would kill to hear a cast album of Funny Girl with you. Like that would that that would be so incredible. Oh, I I I don't think I could sing it. Oh, well, certainly not now. But uh, even then, I don't know that the range was amazing. Well, you how important because that's sort of a secret weapon. I see it as with you is you're so funny that people sometimes look past your incredible vocal abilities and what a fabulous singer you always have been. Was that kind of in the background for you? Was that something that was an important part of your recipe was was the singing what happened was uh my grandmother nanny and i lived in we had one room apartment if you want to call it a block north of the hollywood boulevard with a murphy pull down bed little kitchen bathroom and my mother mama lived down the hall she would come over and we would sing in the kitchen she'd play the ukulele nanny at one point uh could play the piano but we didn't have a piano but uh she she could and uh We'd, we'd sing, but I was kind of quiet. I would take the lead, and Nanny would sing, and Mama would sing harmony. But I, it never occurred to me. And so when I got to UCLA, I'd done a couple of one-acts, student-written one-acts, uh, where I got some notice from some of the seniors. I was a freshman, and one senior came up to me and said, can you carry a tune? He was in the musical comedy workshop, opera workshop department at UCLA, and I said, yeah, I can carry a tune. He said, well, we're doing a scene from South Pacific, and could you be one of the nurses during the Watch That Man Right Out of My Hair? Okay. I said, yeah, I guess so. And so I went, and there was this wonderful gal who was playing Nellie Forbush, and she was singing, and I was just amazed. And so then I started singing with the rest of the girls, but all of a sudden I was loud. I'd never, Randy done that before in my life. Really? Because in the kitchen, I never belted. But I, I found myself belting. I'm 18. And he said, you're too loud. <laughs> and he took me out. And he said, well, we're going to do a scene from Guys and Dolls. We'd like you to do Adelaide's Lament. Perfect. And I said, you mean sing alone? 
And they said, yeah. I, I said, but I don't. And they said, well, she, you know, she's got a cold. And then I thought, well, oh, I could do that because she's got a cold and I don't have to sound so good. And if I hit a clam, I can blame it on the cold. Right. You know? <laughs> and Adelaide's Lament was the first solo I ever sang. And I belted. And all of a sudden I thought, this is what I want to do. Wow. I want to be in musical comedy. And so then from then I did scenes from Call Me Madam and Annie Get Your Gun. And on the first album I ever got for, from a Broadway show was New Faces of 1952. And that was with Alice Ghostly and Paul Lynn and Eartha Kitt. And I played that over and over and over again. And I thought, this is what I want to do. And someday I want to go to New York and be like Ethel Merman and Mary Martin. Wow. Well, it worked out. Yeah. Except when I got into Once Upon a Mattress and that did it, that was really good for me. And then I doubled on the Gary Moore show. I realized I never thought about television at all until I got on Gary's show and we did a musical comedy review every week. And each week I got to do different characters and sing different songs. And then I thought I would rather do that than be the same person eight shows a week for a year or two. See that. So you really, you know, you carved your own path. That's really part of your your genius and why it -hmm. it all worked out the way it did. I believe you just mentioned Bernadette Peters is going to be there on, on Monday. Yes. By Bernadette, yeah. My Bernadette, too. I love her so much. Um, <laughs> she was, of course, a regular on your CBS show. So what what's your relationship been like with her? Where did that start? Oh, my gosh. The first time I saw her, my husband, he produced the Gary Moore show. And so, of course, he was going to produce our show. And we were going to go on the air in six, 1967 in the fall. And this was in uh, early 1967. Bernadette was in a show called Dames at Sea, and I knew some friends who uh, managed her, and they said, you've got to see this girl, and so my husband and I went and saw her. She was 19 or 20, and fell in love and went backstage and said, you know, we're going to do this little variety show that we started. We're going to start in the fall, and we would love you to be a guest. So Bernadette was the very first person we signed to do my show. She wasn't the first guest on the first show, but she was the first person we signed. And she was a semi-regular on the show. Yeah. And then we did Annie together. And we're still, I mean, very, very close to this day. Oh, that's so fabulous. I'll wrap it up after this because I don't want to keep you. But this sort of philosophy of paying it forward, of, of encouraging you know, mm-hmm. new and young talent, yeah. that seems to be a philosophy that you, that is important to you and that you live by. Of course, those of us who know your history know what, you know, an important part of your story that played, you know, mm-hmm. but is that something that, that you are aware of, that you're cognizant of? of... Well, I got a chance to go to New York. Uh, a benefactor sponsored me to go to New York. He lent me a thousand dollars and I had no money at all. And he said, you must use the money to go to New York on. You must promise not to ever reveal my name. And if you are successful, you must promise to help other people out. Evidently, somebody had helped him get a start in business. He was a businessman. And those were the stipulations. I wasn't the only one. I remember I spoke to his wife and he had helped somebody open a restaurant, uh, start another kind of a business. So he kept paying it forward. And so what I do is I, I have scholarships I have at various schools. And one time, though, I remember this I get on my Q&A's. 
What advice would you give somebody who's trying to make it in show business? Mm -hmm. You get that too, I bet, right? I say get out of the business immediately. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I, I, it was very strange. I don't remember what it was, but I was auditioning for a job and it was narrowed down to another girl and me. And I thought I had it. And then it came to me not to be discouraged because I thought, you know what? It's her turn. Hmm. Wow. So I shouldn't be discouraged because someday it will be my turn. And that really kept me from being, as I say, discouraged. Wow. You are so generous. I personally have been the beneficiary of your support and generosity. And, you know, I just will say on the record that getting to uh, connect with you and to call you a personal friend has been, uh, will be one of the great thrills and honors of my life. So I love you. Oh, honey, back at you. Thank you. I, I can't wait to finally give you a great big hug. I might jump into your arms when I finally am in the room with you. So That's just, all, right. all right. I'll carry you anywhere. Okay, good. <laughs> Thank you for this. And I love you. And I can't wait to see you in a couple days. Thank you, sweetheart. And give Gwen my love. I sure will. All right, Carol, I'll talk to you. All right, honey. See you soon. See you soon. Bye. Now the show is over, girl, so thanks for listening. It's been a vibe, and damn it, don't you dare forget to subscribe. I promise next week will be ten times better than even the last. Except when it's not only episode two and my favorite one yet. How the hell will we top the great Carol Burnett? <laughs>